This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 15th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Nunez memo has landed, alleging abuses in the process of securing surveillance warrants on at least one member of the Trump campaign team. It may not have presented a strong case that the process was abused, but it's still worth looking into how the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court does its job. Cato Senior Fellow Julian Sanchez joined me yesterday in a live online Cato Connects discussion. This is a portion of our conversation. Right before this memo was released, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell went out and talked a little bit about uh, this memo. And this is something that I found pretty notable is what Paul Ryan said here. What this memo is, is Congress doing its job in conducting legitimate oversight over a very unique law, FISA. And if mistakes were made and if individuals did something wrong, then it is our job as the legislative branch of government to conduct oversight over the executive branch if abuses were made. Remember, FISA is a unique situation which involves Americans' civil liberties. And if American civil liberties were, were abused, then that needs to come to light so that that doesn't happen again. What this is not is an indictment on our institutions of our justice system. This memo is not an indictment of the FBI, of the Department of Justice. Uh, it does not impugn uh, the Mueller investigation or the deputy attorney general. All right. That's Paul Ryan sort of discussing before the release of the Nunez memo. This is about civil liberties. This is about uh, the House doing its uh, proper oversight function to make sure that civil liberties are not violated. Um, First of all, what did the Nunez memo allege with respect to civil liberties of the people who had been targeted? Sure. Uh, So the central claim of the Nunez memo uh, really was about an allegation that the FBI had misled the FISA court. Um, so just imagine if you're watching this, you probably uh, are familiar with the background to some extent. Um, but we've confirmed that Carter Page, who had been uh, an uh, advisor on energy policy and foreign policy to uh, Donald Trump as a candidate, had left uh, the campaign after some controversy was raised over his ties to uh, to Russia. Um, and then after leaving, uh, a FISA warrant was uh, obtained to wiretap him uh, and renewed it, I believe, on three separate occasions at least that we know of. So he was surveilled for essentially a year uh, shortly after leaving the campaign. Uh, the allegation in the Nunes memo, and this is the main substantive one, is that the uh, Wiretap application was based essentially, I think is the language they used, on a dossier uh, compiled by former MI6 agent Christopher Steele, uh, who was doing essentially opposition research uh, commissioned by the research firm Fusion GPS, um, which had been paid by the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign uh, to compile uh, information about uh, Trump's potential ties to the Russian government. Um, and so the allegation in the Nunes memo is that uh, the there's really actually a couple of separate uh, allegations. One of them is more of an insinuation. Uh, so the insinuated part is that the application rested almost entirely on uh, on this dossier, the findings of this dossier, uh, and it's sort of further insinuated, um, though not really said exactly, that those allegations weren't corroborated in any meaningful way. Uh, but the, the sort of marquee claim is that the uh, FBI concealed from the FISA court that this was not 
you know, just some neutral former intelligence agents, uh, but someone who had been hired at least indirectly by the Democratic National Committee um, to conduct opposition research. Uh, that central claim has not fared very well. Uh, what uh, Democrats immediately responded was effectively confirmed in a letter that was declassified by uh, – written by Senators Grassley and Graham uh, is that in fact there is a footnote uh, that references – uh, that this was a politically funded and politically motivated document. Uh, people say, well, but they, why didn't they say, you know, the Democratic National Committee specifically? Uh, and the answer that's also made pretty clear from the Grassley and Graham letter is uh, because there are no specific names in the application other than Carter Pages, as far as we can tell. Um, it's pretty clear from some quotations in the, in the Grassley memo that um, Steele, Christopher Steele himself, is not named or indeed even referred to with gendered pronouns. So is he or she's research, or his or her research. Um, the uh, CEO of Fusion GPS is referred to as an identified U.S. person. This is pretty common uh, in intelligence. Um, this is a, a, a practice called minimization, uh, which means that even for internal use uh, within the government, you essentially omit uh, the specific names and identifying information of U.S. persons and in the case of Steele, apparently also even British persons, uh, when that's not essential to understand the intelligence. So there's – I mean I, I heard it suggested at one point that even Trump is effectively only identified as U.S. presidential candidate, which seems not like a meaningful uh, obscuring. But I think in this case too, uh, you know, judges on the FISA court – understood, A, what was the relevant thing, which is that this is a, a, a politically financed document. and Take it take with it, a grain of salt. Take it with however much salt that, uh, that entails. Um, but then also, you know, they probably could figure out who Carter Page was from the newspaper and put together who was likely to be funding opposition research on Donald Trump. All right. So um, the, the, the concern that Paul Ryan articulates here is uh, civil liberties and in not or at least the allegation that the this application for uh, surveillance was hiding something or right. prevent or not revealing some things that that it was known to be relevant to uh, the discussion. Uh, I guess why doesn't that then extend to everyone else? Right. Oh, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I want to separate two questions. Um, Republican you know, Ryan here, I think, is, is maybe an extreme example of this of an attempt to. On the one hand, say this is really a, a principled concern with civil liberties, but also in a sense to hermetically seal it and say, but this has nothing to do with any of the larger institutions of the FISA court or the FBI or the Justice Department. Uh, and that's not really tenable, I think, if you understand how FISA works in any detail. Um, this is why I think you want to se segregate really two distinct questions. One question is, uh, was there adequate evidence in this memo to justify uh, wiretapping an American citizen uh, and perhaps with whatever added sensitivity we want to uh, uh, scrutiny we want to uh, attach to uh, a case where there's potential for political abuse, where the target is a former advisor to a presidential campaign. That's one question. We probably don't have enough information to answer it yet. Uh, the second question is, is there compelling evidence that um, the FBI did something extraordinary or underhanded uh, in this particular case? Basically, all of the attempts to uh, make a kind of bad apples argument here and say, it's not the FISA court, it's not 
in any of these institutions, but there was some cabal of bad people who broke the rules and lied to the court and got an order they shouldn't have. Those arguments, to my mind, have not fared very well at all. Um, nevertheless, I think there's a legitimate question of, okay, how much more was in this application than effectively hearsay um, compiled by an opposition researcher? Uh, and if the answer is not a lot, um, which may or may not be the case, uh, we can say maybe a little bit more of that in a second, but uh, if it turns out that the Steele dossier without corroboration was the bulk of it, um, that I think would be legitimately concerning and one could legitimately say that doesn't seem like uh, a good enough basis to wiretap an American citizen for three months, uh, which is the initial phase of a, a FISA order. Uh, but then you can't make the bad apples argument, right? If, if the claim is not the FBI did something aberrant, they lied to the FISA judges, um, but instead, you know, the FISA court was fully informed, but they granted a warrant we don't think they should have, then you have to ask, all right, that's one FISA order. Uh, Probably, realistically, uh, it got a lot more scrutiny and close attention than, you know, an average FISA order, given the sensitivity of the target. Uh, and so if nevertheless, that was approved on grounds that when we have enough information, we think were inadequate, um, you can't segregate that from questions about the institutions. Is the FISA court an effective check? Are the many, many layers of review um, that that application would have had to go through? A meaningful check. Uh, you know, civil libertarians complain about lots of intelligence tools, but the part of FISA, Title I of FISA, these targeted surveillance orders approved by the secret court, um, you know, it's not that there are no problems with the process, but there, this is the part of FISA that civil libertarians tend to have the fewest problems with and kind of speak up about the least because it's the one that looks most like a kind of traditional criminal investigative warrant process. Uh, and so, if the surveillance tool with the most oversight, where there's not just the FISA court, there's multiple layers of review within FBI, there's these fairly exacting wood, woods procedures, as they're called, carried out by uh, attorneys in the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Um, if that most uh, hedged in with safeguards part of FISA is still yielding uh, extensive surveillance that in the light of day doesn't look justified, um, you, you can't say this has no implications for our institutions. You have to assume that things, in a sense, can only be worse uh, in the tools that are less hedged with, with safeguards. All right. A question here from Johnson3000. Thank you for the question here. Uh, what are the big takeaways from the Nunez memo and will its uh, release have any effect on the investigations as they move forward? Right. Uh, it's hard to say. I think there's been a... Um, you know, as as we are perhaps accustomed to now, a kind of divergence in the reactions to the Nunez memo. My sense is, uh, by and large, and without uh, you know clear partisan dividing lines here, uh, people who are national security experts and experts in FISA law uh, looked at the Nunez memo and said, "There's just not a whole lot there. Um, certainly not anything that would support a, a claim of." you know, radical impropriety or some kind of willful conspiracy. Or at least impropriety that is outside the normal range of impropriety. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's right, a low bar, but um, if the claim is, right, this is some extraordinary case where the FBI uh, went outside of its normal uh, practice, 
there's not a good uh, a lot of evidence there. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not being sort of regarded as explosive proof by uh, you know media outlets that are friendly to the presences. Um, you know the likelihood that, like so many other news events, it's going to play in a kind of bifurcated way as it goes forward. But the consensus has been interestingly sharp. I mean, this Republic Orrin Kerr, for example, uh, was a uh, was a professor at Georgetown Law, is now in California, I think at UCLA. Um, Paul Rosenzweig, uh, was a scholar at Heritage for a long time, um, have all sort of written publicly that they don't really see a lot of uh, a there there here. Um, so the long-term impact, uh, you know, part of the question is, what is the point? What is it supposed to accomplish? If the goal is uh, give Republicans cover with their constituents so that uh, you know, when Donald Trump fires Bob Mueller and, uh, and Rod Rosenstein, uh, the, the, who's Mueller's supervisor at the Justice Department, um, the constituents are sort of fine with that and think they're purging the deep state conspiracy. Uh, so Republicans feel OK not saying much or, or, or pushing back. Um, it, it might well uh, succeed at having that effect. Um, I think a lot is going to depend on what happens with the the Democratic response um, when that is, as I imagine it will be, ultimately released in some unredacted form. Um, I think, again, on the was there a, a strange conspiracy question, that argument's not faring very well. You have the residual question of, uh, all right, but was there enough evidence to justify this this order? And that's more up in the air. Uh, what we know is it was one of the sticking points in the Democratic response is that there are supposedly 47 different items that the FBI has asked them to redact. Um, you know, unless they're just sort of arbitrarily disclosing classified facts, um, that seems to suggest there's more in the application. There's more evidence pertaining to uh, how the FBI secured that order from from the FISC um, than it was just a steel dossier, which is uh, now public. So uh, if you have a question for uh, Julian Sanchez on the Nunez memo, the Grassley letter, and our uh, high secret courts uh, in the federal government, you can uh, tweet those using the hashtag CatoConnects, and we'll uh, get to those as soon as we can. Uh, one question here from Sahil Desai. Mm -hmm. If the FISA process is so flawed, why did the GOP help reauthorize it? And they didn't help reauthorize it. They reauthorized it, right? right? So, I mean, again, I will say the the – Title I FISA process is the least flawed one, right? Again, um, you probably, if you kind of look through things I've written about surveillance, you will probably not see me um, objecting that loudly to these targeted warrants. I think there's questions to raise about them, but um, that's that's not the part of the process people tend to think is is most seriously fraud, flawed. But the, the question is a good one. What the Republicans reauthorized recently, uh, indeed, just very shortly before the defense of the Nunes memo, was Section 702. This is a different part of FISA. Um, it's a title, uh, Title 7 of FISA, which is, is uh, about warrantlessly targeting foreigners, um, but also on a very large scale, uh, but compiling a huge database of their internet communications that can then subsequently be searched by, uh, by intelligence officials, which means maybe you don't need to go through the process and jump through the hoops required to directly wiretap an American citizen if you can get what you need by targeting their foreign contacts, 
technically not supposed to do that, but it's hard to um, sort of determinatively show someone's intent in targeting a foreign party, uh, and then comb through the database looking for that person's name or identifying information. Um, and so you would think, okay, well, this is a warrantless uh, process that uh, that uh, can still be used to to query for American communications. If you are worried about abuse of the more rigorous Title I process where there's individualized judicial oversight, um, wouldn't you have even more concerns for what had been done with the less regulated surveillance process? Because we, we know more about this application than perhaps any other application oh, that has sure. ever been this is, presented I'm, I'm, to the court. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is, this is by far more detail than, than we've ever had about a FISA application. Until I think about 2002, 2003, uh, there had never been any opinion of the FISA court uh, that had been made public. And so between 2002 and 2013, I believe there were two FISA court opinions that were, uh, that were made public for the first time. And this is a court that's existed since 1979. Um, that was, was sort of unprecedented. And then since the Snowden disclosures, um, the government has, as opposed to its credit, become really significantly more transparent. Um, there are now dozens of FISA court opinions uh, that are on the public record, uh, but a FISA application has never, to, to the best of my knowledge, uh, been made public. And so there's uh, discussion now about whether settling this means we need to get uh, the some redacted version of the original underlying application. If that happened, it would be the first time ever. Um, so, right, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's two questions that it's reasonable to ask. One is uh, if you have issues with how uh, this application uh, was supported. Uh, because, okay, well, we've never seen any other applications. Is that unusual? Um, was it better or less well supported than the other, you know, fifteen hundred plus uh, FISA applications that are uh, uh, that are sought and, and granted every year? Um, and I think in two thousand sixteen, there were about uh, fourteen hundred and eighty five. FISA orders and a little over 300 uh, were targeting American uh, citizens or permanent legal residents. Um, you know, is the basis for their targeting more robust than what's in the page application? That's one question to ask. And then again, the other is, right, um, why would you be worried about this, uh, uh, this Title I authority that does have many layers of oversight and judicial approval. Um, and then at the same time, I'm talking literally about individually, Devin Nunes here, um, say, we don't need any reform of this warrantless authority. We don't need any additional protections, which Justin Amash had proposed, uh, to require a warrant before that vast database uh, of intercepted communications can be searched for an American's emails uh, or, or chats. Um, you know, literally, you, you saw the same people who are now talking about a deep state politically motivated conspiracy to target Trump um, during that debate saying, well, why would we need reform? Why would we need extra protections? This authority has never been abused, as we know, because the deep state cabal told us it's never been abused. It's, it's, um, it is difficult to reconcile those two, um, those two beliefs. You would, at the one hand, think um, you have very compelling evidence of some uh, – necessarily very far-reaching conspiracy given the multiple layers of internal review before an application gets to the FISA court. Um, and then at the same time, uh, you can trust assurances that, uh, that other less well-guarded powers 
uh, are are being used appropriately. Right. So um, you've written that, unfortunately, the way that this is played out, uh, it is it has become perhaps less likely to get reform of these kinds of authorities, mm-hmm. and uh, yet in public media, we're hearing more about the FISC, the right. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, than we've ever heard before, like ever. <laughs> so, so how reconcile those two things? If you think this thing, this thing is going to harm efforts to try to get reform in that area. Right. Uh, no, I mean, look, that may well be healthy. I mean, be a healthy development just to raise public awareness of the FISC and start people asking questions like, you mean, a, you know, a secret court can uh, order a wiretap on me and I, I would never hear about it. Um, but uh, I think there's a couple problems. One is just anything that becomes um, essentially partisanized um, becomes a less useful or a fruitful debate, right? There's, civil liberties are an issue where you actually see an interesting level of kind of bipartisan action in both directions. You have um, Democrats who are uh, very friendly to uh, the intelligence agencies and uh, tend to support uh, broader sort of post 9-11 war on terror surveillance powers. And you have uh, Republicans who break from the majority of their caucus to uh, to support reform uh, and, and try and constrain uh, their ability to spy. Uh, if it becomes sort of a party line issue, I think you have less uh, useful room for maneuver there. Um, and indeed, I think you know, we're seeing Democrats in, in a way almost hedge themselves in, not just saying, uh, you know, the case presented here is is not particularly compelling, uh, but, you know, how outrageous to question the FBI and the FISA court. And, and um, you know, it's just absurd to suggest that there that these, you know, patriots would uh, would might ever politically misuse that authority. Well, you know, of course, we know there's a long history of political mus- misuse of, of not these particular surveillance authorities, but of the FBI and NSA and CIA's power of spy. Um, so... I think it would be unfortunate in, in a way, right, if, if crying wolf on this issue ends up uh, discrediting the absolutely legitimate concern that these are uh, extremely broad powers. Um, they are unusual in our uh, constitutional system uh, and that history suggests that they are very likely to be abused if they're not uh, overseen quite rigorously. So your, your argument then is the hype and the hype that sort of failed in terms right. of the allegations made here may in a sense inoculate – the intelligence community against a sort of a deeper look at how they do what they do. That's right. I mean, if if the sort of the takeaway once enough information is out that there can be, to the extent that it is ever possible in America now, uh, a kind of broad consensus about um, what was what was proven and what wasn't. Um, the extent the conclusion is all right. These allegations of abuse, these claims that uh, people's civil liberties were imperiled by. Uh, FISA tools um, was you know, essentially a stunt, was uh, uh, something ginned up for for partisan advantage um, to try and discredit an investigation of of, of a Republican president. Um, I think that makes it you know, harder to get people to take seriously the claims that you know, just for policy reasons um, we should be we should be worried about those things, not because we're trying to protect Donald Trump because those are things legitimately worth worrying about. So let's get into what the FISC actually does. Uh, Where did this court come from and why was it believed to be necessary when it was created? 
Right. Um, I, you know, I will occasionally say, well, you know, FISA, isn't that terrible? It creates this secret court. And I say, well, you know, but it's a lot better than what we had before. Um, the FISA court originates from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. Um, the court itself was constituted the following year. Uh, and it was really a response to uh, the discovery via the Church Committee, as a Senate committee headed by Senator Frank Church, um, that investigated the conduct of the intelligence community uh, over the preceding several decades and found uh, a pretty chilling uh, pattern of systematic political abuse of surveillance authorities, not limited just to uh, electronic surveillance, but infiltration, uh, disinformation, various forms of harassment of uh, political adversaries of administrations, of uh, activists, uh, either feminist or anti-war, uh, in particular, uh, often um, uh, black nationalist activists, uh, and then more mainstream civil rights leaders, um, most famously uh, certainly not exclusively. Um, we learned from this that uh, G. Edgar Hoover, as part of a program called COINTELPRO, had subjected uh, Martin Luther King to an extensive system of surveillance, including capturing him uh, in his uh, motel rooms, having sex with women he wasn't married to. Um, these were uh, essentially later compiled into a highlight reel that was sent to his home as part of an effort to his his allies believed uh, drive him into depression and perhaps suicide um, in uh, the months before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, that's you know maybe the most dramatic example, but part of a much larger pattern of political abuse. And so uh, having for decades essentially allowed the intelligence community to treat itself as outside the bounds of uh, both general Fourth Amendment rules and federal statutes governing criminal investigations and wiretaps uh, in, in criminal inquiries. Those are under what's usually called Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control Act of 1968. Um, it was observed that judicial oversight was really pretty clearly necessary for intelligence surveillance as well. And so uh, the FISA court was created to really for the first time uh, regulate the intelligence community's use, at least within the United States, of uh, surveillance technology. Uh, outside the United States, shortly after the passage of FISA, uh, the community effectively got a charter for the first time uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan signed off on an executive order known as Executive Order 12333 uh, that set some much uh, weaker limits on uh, how the intelligence agencies could conduct themselves outside the borders of the United States. Uh, but the FISA court's job uh, was to uh, to ensure that there was some judicial oversight of targeted surveillance uh, domestically. Uh, and there were slightly complex different standards depending on whether the target of surveillance was uh, a U.S. person or a foreign person. Um, but in both cases, the uh, the court would be required to uh, agree that there was probable cause to believe that the person targeted was an agent of a foreign power. And the definition of who counts as a foreign agent was a bit uh, more stringent for, foreign, uh, for Americans than it was for foreigners. Uh, but for its first decades, really it was doing the ordinary work of a court that approves applications for individualized wiretaps. It was making assessments of uh, of evidentiary adequacy uh, and showings of probable cause with respect to particular persons and particular uh, communications facilities that were going to be surveilled. Um, and uh, it's hard to know exactly how to read this, but for the first couple decades of its existence, the FISA court effectively approved every application that was put before it. Um, 
It's hard to say whether this is because the court was a rubber stamp um, or because um, the agencies were just so rigorous about what uh, what they choose to what they chose to uh, submit to the court. And, and why do we not know that? Because no one has ever seen a FISA application before. Um, you know, folks from the intelligence community always say, "No, the approvals are so high because." Um, there's a back and forth process that doesn't show up in just a question of whether something was approved or not. They will send things back and say, uh, you know, um, this isn't quite strong enough. Why don't you narrow it and maybe leave some people out of the application and only target these folks? Or why don't you come back to us with a little bit more uh, substantiating information? Um, and then an application might be withdrawn. Uh, and so the, the rejections they, uh, they claim don't show the full story. Uh, I think that's probably true to some extent. I think also probably the court is uh, inclined to be pretty deferential to uh, intelligence, uh, the intelligence agencies when uh, they make assertions about you know, who they have concluded in their professional expertise is probably a, a foreign spy when effectively this is going to be permanently secret. Right? It's not like if you approve an application that's uh, weakly supported, um, this is going to you know, come out when the higher court sort of slaps you down, when all this comes out, when the target is brought to trial. Um, you're only hearing essentially from one side, and you don't have to worry that if you're too lenient in the approval, um, this is going to come out when ultimately the target is, is indicted, and you have discovery obligations, and their lawyers get to go uh, picking through these things and, and seeing whether uh, the warrant was appropriate. Um, so... You know, I think the, the, both the incentives and sort of the sociology of it, um, right? these are the people you're hearing from every day. They're telling you how important it is to stop these national security threats um, would tend to bias the court in favor of deference to their conclusions. So I think you know, probably both are true um, to some extent, but it's hard to know what the balance is without actually being able to directly assess the, um, the sort of the underlying material. Um, the FISA court, I think, has probably been overextended to some extent, at least since 9-11, if not before. Um, so, you know, by the time we hit the 21st century, the uh, the court has gone from seven to 11 judges, all appointed by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, whoever that is. But at present, uh, all the sitting FISA judges were appointed by John Roberts. Um, and have really gone beyond their sort of initial mandate of making these kind of individualized decisions. As we've learned, uh, you know, a significant part as a result of the, the Edward Snowden disclosures, um, they are often now in the position of deciding whether uh, various kinds of programmatic surveillance are consistent with um, the, uh, the broader set of, of uh, statutory tools orbiting uh, orbiting FISA. Uh, and so, you know, you have questions like, all right, well, you've got this, uh, this authority to get business records and documents. Um, it's supposed to require that the records you obtain are relevant to an investigation. Can you get entire databases of information like everyone's phone records um, and then claim uh, that's relevant because going through the entire database will let you find the specifically relevant records? Um, the court seemed to think that was all right. It accepted a similar argument as it pertained to uh, bulk collection of international internet metadata uh, from the internet backbone. Um, seems to uh, approved, I would say, you know, a, a number of practices that go beyond questions about have you shown this person as a foreign agent um, that 
you know, raise more questions as to whether this is the kind of decision, not a decision about evidence in a particular case, but uh, decisions about how uh, these rather powerful intelligence tools will be interpreted. Um, is there going to be a secret body of common law effectively um, defining the scope of intelligence powers um, that, that is, I think, a lot more questionable than whether we've got a secret court that's only uh, making these more individualized determinations. And even there, I think, again, there's a, a kind of a problem over time of, of uh, a bias towards deference. Um, and so, you know, it might be preferable to have a, a, a different process there, although some recent reforms have um, tried to counteract that to some extent by creating uh, – a uh, series of amici, basically outside uh, experts to uh, argue before the court and present either technical or legal perspectives that the government itself might not uh, find itself motivated to offer as to why a particular kind of surveillance might not be acceptable. Right. So you make you make mention of, of the applications, the attorneys who work for the government go before these judges with their applications. Sometimes those might be – the judges might say, well, look – uh, let's let's make some changes here, and then we'll approve it. But there's no other side, right? That's there, right. There's there as you, as you just described. There's no other attorney saying, "Now hold on a second. Right. And let's, that's as you say, that is normal for wiretap applications. You don't you don't have another side when you're applying for a a wiretap, even in a criminal investigation, because it defeats the purpose if you but it announce to the lawyer. Right. What matters, I think, is is Eventually, there's going to be another side, and if the judge is uh, uh, sort of granting everything that's that's put before them, um, that's something that's going to get challenged when uh, that wiretap evidence is is introduced in a prosecution. Because the point of Title III criminal wiretaps is to generate evidence to use in trial and to make criminal cases. The point of FISA is not to make criminal cases, and it's essentially understood uh, way back in the legislative history that in the normal case, the target of FISA surveillance uh, would never learn of it and would never be brought to court over it. Uh, you know, very often we're talking about foreign agents who come in and out and probably aren't going to be tried here, you, in part because you don't want to expose sources methods, and it's geared towards gathering useful information, not necessarily about making criminal cases. There are procedures uh, for the use of uh, FISA intercept information in criminal trials, of course, but um, the actual frequency of that happening is quite, quite low um, of the, again, you know, sort of 1,500 to 1,000 to 2,000 uh, orders issued annually. Um, it's extremely rare for more than a couple to ever uh, make their way into the inside of a court. So you mentioned uh, that we have referred in uh, at a couple of moments to the Grassley memo, and you say that's it's more important than the Nunez memo. It pokes some holes in uh, some arguments that were presented there. What was the main thrust of that right. that discussion? So Senators Grassley and, and Graham uh, sent a letter to the FBI that was uh, recently released in a more fully declassified form. And their primary focus was – well, their nominal focus was a, a criminal referral to the FBI suggesting that um, Steele uh, might have lied to the FBI about uh, the extent of his contacts with the media about the investigation. Um, I think – uh, you know, so realistically, uh, you have to understand this, the, the true function of this as not really a criminal referral. Um, right? The FBI is 
aware of any information that was uh, uh, brought to their attention by the senators um, and the odds that they're going to attempt to criminally prosecute a British citizen over misstatements about the extent of media contacts are slim. Um, so you sort of have to infer that the purpose of this is, is not really the hopes of uh, securing a criminal prosecution against Christopher Steele. It's more, again, about sort of uh, highlighting questions about the FBI's process. Um, so, you know, part of the, the, the question raised there is, um, all right, well, are there reasons the FBI should have been more qualified in its assessments of Steele's credibility um, in sort of using findings from his research as the, uh, as the basis for, or a, a basis anyway for this application? Uh, and so on the one hand, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it sort of accidentally kind of blows a hole in the, in the core claim of the Nunes memo. It makes it clear first that the FISA court was informed that this was uh, politically motivated research. And second, it makes clear that the uh, omission of the DNC specifically as the funder was um, not some strange omission attempt to hide something, but just part of a pattern of not naming U.S. persons in the application. Um, but it also says more directly several things that Nunes actually kind of oddly and conspicuously only insinuates. Um, so uh, uh, Graham and Grassley say not just the, the, the Steele dossier was cited, but that it formed the bulk of the application. So that matters. It matters whether um, the, the Steele dossier was one piece of evidence among many others or you know, the, the main show. Uh, and also they claim that it was not meaningfully corroborated, which again is important. Um, you're not really hanging anything on your assessment of the credibility of Christopher Steele if you've checked the claims and they match up with a lot of other evidence you have from uh, telecommunications records or bank records or other sources of information. Um, if you haven't meaningfully corroborated it, then it's a lot more questionable what the FISA court is doing, uh, signing off on, on something that's effectively hearsay. I mean, part of the problem here is if what the FBI do is, is doing is saying – We've found Christopher Steele to be a credible source in the past, which he uh, he had been, apparently, to to, to the Bureau. Um, that's fine. Um, not necessarily uh, illegitimate just because on this occasion, uh, you know, the checks are being cut by, uh, by the DNC for his research. Uh, but fundamentally, Steele is reporting hearsay, right? It's not that Steele has direct knowledge of the things he's saying. He's, he's rather reporting what his Russian sources um, have told him about Steele acting as a liaison, about some kind of collusion and electoral interference. Um, and that's sort of a problem even if you think Steele is credible despite his funding sources uh, because what you're then saying is we think he's credible and therefore we're willing to extend credibility to claims he is reporting from other sources we don't have direct access to. If that's, you know, actually the picture, that's, that's problematic. It's pretty thin. Uh, that would be thin. Again, uh, we have a, a Democratic response that is undergoing declassification review. is supposed to have 47 items. It may turn out that there is much more to this application than um, either Nunez or Graham and Grassley imply or, or say. Um, but Graham and Grassley was significant in that it directly addressed the question, not of whether the Steele dossier as a whole had been verified. Right? Nunez made a great deal of James Comey saying that parts of the dossier were salacious and unverified, meaning uh, salacious allegations about Donald Trump and prostitutes in, in a Moscow hotel. Um, 
uh, he had clearly not said in the testimony that was quoted, everything in the dossier is unverified. Everything in the dossier is salacious. Um, so that the Nunes memo tried to use this as its evidence that uh, the dossier information was unverified rather than just directly saying the specific facts. There's only a, you know, a few items in the dossier that really are about Carter Page. Um, the specific facts cited in the FISA application, those facts were uncorroborated. That's the claim that matters if you want to say something went wrong with the process here. Uh, and so the fact that the Nunes memo relied on uh, on this you know, not very convincing uh, citation to James Comey uh, you know, I think appropriately raised eyebrows and said, why aren't you making the claim that, that it's relevant? Um, Graham and Grassley at least did make the claim. They did not meaningfully corroborate uh, the steel information upon which they relied. But, but um, again, it seems, seems like we're getting sort of pinholes here of what uh, the truth is, right? With the right. Nunez memo refers to a bunch of things that nobody has access to. Right. And um, you know, you wonder whether or not uh, Mr. Nunez has put put together the best claim, or if there's something preventing him from putting together, sure. putting forward the That's best right. claim that he could be making. Yeah, uh, I mean, again, I think the the Democratic response will give us a sense of uh, legitimacy of this. Right, a lot, essentially, right now we're we're sort of going with what has been asserted. Uh, the most direct assertion, again, from Graham and Grassley is this dossier was the bulk of the application and um, the facts from the dossier that were cited weren't independently meaningfully corroborated. Um, if we assume that that's an accurate characterization, I think that's a problem. Uh, then the question becomes, OK, well, is that accurate? If we, the Democratic member comes out and they say, actually, you know, they forgot to mention these other, you know, five sources that are part of the application and that aren't uh, mentioned, even if they don't go into too much detail, and I would imagine they, they wouldn't, about what exactly the sources were. Um, like there are good intelligence reasons. You, you would not want to tip uh, Russian intelligence off to, you know, uh, specifically what, what uh, uh, sensitive information about their activities that you, you've uh, got ways of gathering. Uh, but, uh, but simply just at least knowing... There's a bunch of other sources that are omitted from the characterization by Nunez and Grassley um, would, I think, you know, reasonably lead us to, to uh, treat that as, as less reliable. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of see what they say. It may nevertheless come down to um, not really being able to judge this without looking at the underlying application itself, again, it would be totally unprecedented for a FISA application to be uh, made public in any way. Uh, but even if it had to be pretty substantially redacted, it might be useful, uh, I mean, in a sense, just to look at the relative size of the blackout bars. Um, if you see, okay, five pages or, the, or 10 pages of the Steele dossier, and then there's 10, 15 pages of supporting material that's got to be blacked out, um, that at minimum tells you uh, there's other supporting evidence uh, beyond the Steele dossier, and you know, whether it's enough maybe is unknowable. Uh, but at least you can you can assess the claim that um, this is really centrally about the Steele dossier. Uh, Jake asks a question. He says, uh, "We at Pogo Blog, this is the project on government oversight, says our concern. This is a related issue. Concerned about the news that ICE would like to become part of the intel community. What uh, risks does that pose?" Um, yeah, I mean, that seems like a, um, I'm sorry, if you want to, if you want to talk about, uh, uh, 
law enforcement agencies, they're out of control. I think you have a, uh, a reasonably good case for uh, ICE falling into that category. Um, and, you know, you know, lots of law enforcement agencies can get forwarded um, pieces of intelligence that are relevant to their work. Um, but I think it makes more sense for that to be a judgment call made by the intelligence agencies themselves as it now is. So it's not that you know local law enforcement uh, or the DEA or other agencies uh, can't have access to information that the intelligence agencies obtain. It's just that the intelligence agencies essentially are making their own determination about when uh, those other entities need to be looped in. Uh, and so to routinize direct access to this uh, rather sensitive uh, 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 and and enormous body of of information and to be giving uh, I sort of the, the the go ahead to kind of be participating in the process of choosing targets and tasking uh, surveillance is is I think uh, a particularly uh, uh, unwise idea, not least because there's there's kind of the perennial issue of mission creep. Uh, these are the FISA tools, right? Differ. Significantly, even even Title One, which I said is the least problematic, the closest to uh, ordinary criminal surveillance process, right, involves uh, a lot broader authority and somewhat laxer uh, legal thresholds than the criminal equivalent. And the reason the safeguards there are weaker, um, I mean, there are there are for foreign intelligence purposes, even under the, the that Title One particularized surveillance uh, process. Uh, the conditions under which a warrant can be issued are conditions that would not pass constitutional muster in a criminal court. Um, it's because of the special needs of foreign intelligence, for example, that um, you know, someone could you could get a a ninety day wiretap uh, on someone on the basis of, of evidence showing that they may be involved in uh, conduct that would violate the law. Um, you know, you you would not get that out of a uh, a criminal court um, or a court supporting a criminal investigation, uh, but we're told the needs are different in the case of foreign intelligence for various reasons, and there's something to that. Um, but the further you get from the sort of core use case of uh, foreign spies trained in tradecraft and foreign terror groups that, again, have uh, you know some semi-equivalent uh, foreign support network and, and tradecraft training and get more toward um, ordinary immigration enforcement uh, or immigration enforcement plus other criminal laws like drug trafficking, uh, the more questionable it becomes, the more you, I think, reasonably ask, why do you need these extraordinary and very flexible tools to spy um, as we get into territory that looks a lot more like ordinary criminal law enforcement? Are we going to continue to see, uh, if, if you're correct, and uh, reforming FISA is in a sense not on the table as much as it would have been even a couple of years ago, are we going to just continue to, I guess, see or in this case, not really see uh, potential abuses or misuse of these applications? So I should hedge this. I mean, it depends, genuinely depends what we conclude as this plays out. Um, so it may well turn out that, as I've suggested, the case for a, a FBI deep state conspiracy uh, against Trump is not very good. But it turns out that the evidence that this is an awfully thin basis to wiretap an American citizen, that might uh, that might well turn out to be the case. Uh, 
And if that is the case, that might well spur people to ask, all right, was this just Carter Page or in general, these orders not getting uh, not getting the level of evidentiary support we think is adequate? Um, and if that's true, what's going on with all the authorities where you don't even have particularized judicial oversight? Um, that is an outcome I can see. Um, and, you know, to the extent, again, that this refocuses folks on these authorities in advance, that may be helpful the next time. Uh, uh, the, the, the the section of FISA, Section 702, the sort of warrantless foreign targeting uh, authority, was just uh, reauthorized. So that's in place for another six years. Uh, but we've got another year or two before uh, the uh, sections of the Patriot Act, including Section 215, um, which is the uh, the authority implicated in that uh Snowden disclosure involving bulk telephone record collection uh, are up for reauthorization again. So, you know, the pattern in the past has very often been um, this is something that comes up right before the expiration date. Um, there's not much interest in talking about the authorities. Ron Wyden says, I want some hearings. They give him, you know, something uh, to, to throw a bone. Or they uh, promise him hearings at some point in the future right. and then never do it. But essentially what happens is as they get to the uh, the expiration deadline, uh, the, 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 the drop dead date for renewing uh, some of these expiring surveillance authorities um, – so the, the congressional leadership says, well, there's no time for a real debate. We'll have some, some sort of quick speeches, and, but now we've got to just hurry up and vote, and there's no time to talk about reform. Uh, if instead this is something that's sort of in the zeitgeist, that people are attuned to at least the potential for, for misuse of these authorities, um, it may be more likely that attention is paid and a kind of process starts early enough that um, the kind of window – of opportunity for reform is not sort of steamrolled through by the, the fake emergency of we waited until the last minute, now we've got to act. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 